Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, we bring to you our praise. We continue now in prayer in this chorus of praise, in this expression of worship. And we do that because you truly are worthy. You are worthy of all power and all praise. You are worthy of that because, first of all, just because of who you are. You're the God who is holy, holy, holy. You're the God of all power and might. You're the God to whom nothing is impossible. You're the God of all wisdom and knowledge, who sees all and knows all. You're the God of eternity, the ancient of days, the God who is and who was and who is to come. You're the God who sovereignly reigns. You are reigning today. You have always reigned and you will always reign. You're the God of all goodness. You're the God that is kind and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. In fact, you are the God who is love, Scripture says. You are a God of perfect justice and righteousness. Every one of your decisions are correct. You're a God who is transcendent and high and exalted and above, and yet you are at the same time the God who is imminent, close, and in the lives of your people, even living within. So, for those attributes that I just mentioned and so many more that we could mention, we give you praise and worship because of who you are. But that's not the only reason that we give you praise and worship. We do that also because of what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. God, what you have done, you have created us. And as our creator, you deserve our worship and praise. And what you are doing is that you are sustaining our life. Not only, though, did you create and are you sustaining, but you're our redeemer. You're the one that came to us as we were living in rebellion, dead in sin, outside of your family, under your wrath, your just holy wrath. You pursued us through the unspeakable act of sending your very own son, the co-equal, co-eternal member of the Godhead to come down and marry his divine nature with a human nature so that he could put on our flesh, experience our pain and troubles, face our temptations, and then take that flesh to the cross and nail it there 
to pay the price for our sin. Thank you for what you have done to save us. But wonder of all wonders, you don't even stop there. Because once you save us, then you come in through the person of your Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to walk with the follower of Christ throughout the rest of his days and into eternity. That you who began the good work in us carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That the God who saves is the God who promises to remain and to never leave us or forsake us. Oh God, what you are doing, continue to do and will do in the future. For that we give you thanks and praise because you are worthy. You are worthy. In fact, every good and perfect gift comes from you. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Oh, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know the truth and the truth sets us free. I believe that you want to do that right here in some lives this morning. I've already heard it after the first service of just freedom that comes from understanding accurately the truth. Freedom from the lies of the enemy. Lord, final thing, just as we prepare to open up your word, I want to thank you that you love us enough to chastise us, to discipline us when we need that. What I'm asking now is that you would open eyes and hearts to see and understand your truth that where there has been lies that the enemy has fed us and that we have bought into that those lies and that darkness would be shattered by the light of your truth right here today and there would be freedom that comes from that blessing encouragement even when we're talking about a difficult subject like your chastisement. I believe you're going to do that. Fill me with your Holy Spirit toward that end. And let your truth go out in power right to the hearts, every heart here in the way that it needs applied. I know that you're able. And I'm thanking you in advance that you're going to do that. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Morning, church. Last week, I began a mini-series, a short mini-series in a long extended series that we are walking through. The long series, the verse-by-verse 
exposition of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And in the sixth chapter, we come to the 17th verse of Romans 6. And it became obvious in walking through that that we needed to talk about this idea of God's chastisement. And so last week, I opened that topic thinking that it was going to be a one-week message, and here we are on week two, and it looks like now it's going to be a three-part miniseries. But it's really important, I believe, that we spend the time, and here is one reason why. After last week's uh, introductory message and getting partway through what I wanted to cover, that brought up in many of your minds some questions, and I received several emails and had conversations throughout this week, all of them without exception, very very positive and complimentary, but nevertheless, questions being raised and this being clearly a great topic of interest and a desire for clear understanding of what God's Word says about the subject of God's chastisement in the life of the believer. So we're going to continue today. Last week, we talked about just the very fact that God does chastise. We defined what that was, that God does in fact do that, and to whom He does that is to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, to every follower of Jesus Christ. And that it is in fact an act of love on God's part, God the Father's part, and one of the greatest proofs that you are, in fact, a child of Jesus Christ, a child of the King. So we're going to pick up now part two of God's chastisement. And what I want to do to begin with, we're going to tackle this question today. I told you last week that we would be talking about this. The question is this, in what ways or what forms does God's chastisement come into our lives as followers of Christ? What ways or forms does God's chastisement come? But before I answer that, I want to answer a precursory question that feeds into that. And this is in part due to just conversations that I had and realization that I really need to kind of set a stage here first before I talk specifically about God's chastisement and how that comes to step back a little bit further and answer this question. In what ways does trouble in general come into a believer's life? And what I believe I can show you, what I believe is true in Scripture is that you can fit all of the trouble that comes into a Christian's life into one of three categories. And I'm going to give you those three categories. And I'm not going to give them in any order of priority uh, or importance, just three categories. And I really believe it is important that we understand what these three are. And I want to say this specifically to you parents. 
it is really helpful and would be a great idea for you as a parent to take these three categories and instruct your children with them so that they understand as they are growing up that when troubles come into their life, they're really coming in, the, in one of three ways. And it's so important that they understand that because if they misinterpret a trouble as being something that it is not, it can lead them to get a wrong view of God or even see God as something that he is not something negative and harsh instead of a God of love who is always working for their good. And the other reason it is so critical that they are able to determine which of these three areas their troubles in life fall into is because the Bible gives a different response to each one of them. So there needs to be a proper diagnosis so that there can be a correct path. So let's just take that step back and let me answer the question, in what ways does trial, do trials or troubles come into a believer's life? Here's the first way. It's the subject that we're talking about, God's chastisement. We'll come back to this once I've kind of defined these three, but God's chastisement is when God applies His hand of corrective discipline to a believer's life when the believer has stepped outside of God's plan and has walked into sin and is pursuing a course of sin or refusing to obey what God is saying. God applies His loving corrective discipline to turn the believer back to a place of obedience so that they can come back to a place of blessing and health. So that's one area. The second area of trouble in a believer's life is tests or trials. Tests slash trials. And the, the purpose of a test or a trial is to determine the authentic nature of an individual's faith. To determine whether or not the person really believes. Let me give you an example of a confusion here. Because it is, I think, pretty common for individuals, Christian believers, to draw the conclusion that every trouble in their life comes because of their sin or comes because or a direct result of somebody's sin that's really close to them. Case in point, I'm going to show you that error in Scripture. John chapter 9, 1 through 3 Jesus is with his disciples and he comes by a man who was born blind. And listen to what the disciples said to Jesus and pick up on the error that I'm referring to. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi or teacher, 
who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Do you hear the error? There was two options in their mind that had to be true. Either that man had somehow sinned, maybe even in the womb that caused him to be born blind, or his parents had sinned that brought this curse upon the man. And Jesus identified it as an error. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. That's an error. That is not always the cause of trouble, your sin or someone close to you. Then he said, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus said, this man was born blind and has lived now into adulthood as a blind man so that today I could walk by and show my power in this man's life. And he walked over there and he performed through a process a miracle that gave sight to eyes that were born blind. It had nothing to do with that man's sin or his parents' sin. It was entirely, Jesus said, a setup for the glory of God to break out and Jesus to prove that he is who he claimed to be. Point being, your troubles are not always a result of your sin. And if you draw that conclusion that they are, it can leave you confused. It can cause you to fault God for bringing chastising pain into your life and you can't figure out for the life of you why that chastisement is coming. And the truth is, it very well may not be God's chastisement at all. It may be for a reason that has nothing to do with your sin or the sin of someone else close to you. Critical lesson to understand that that helps to clear up confusion. The second category here, tests and trials. So it's not all God's chastisement because of sin. Troubles can also come in the form of tests and trials. And tests and trials are meant to validate the authentic, genuine nature of your faith or to grow your faith Case in point, poster child for the lesson, Job. Quickly, here's the scenario. God, ruler of all the universe, sitting sovereign over all, Satan presents himself, comes to heaven with the angels to present himself to God, and God strikes up a conversation with Satan, and he asks him a question. God is initiating, God is the instigator, and he knows exactly how Satan will respond and what he'll do based upon the response and what Job will do, and that in the end, God and his truth will be vindicated. But he asks Satan the question, he says, where have you been? Satan says, I've been walking to and fro throughout the earth and going about in it, and God says, oh, so then you've seen Job. Have you considered him, Satan? Have you considered my servant Job? I have no one else like him. 
Job 1.8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan's response was, Sure he does. Sure he does. It's only skin deep, though. It's not real. It's not authentic. Man, let some trouble... Put your hand on him and let trouble come into his life and you'll see how quickly he will turn. His faith isn't real. It's only skin deep. And so God said, okay, Satan, do what you will. God didn't do it. God permitted it. Satan brought the trouble and God said, here's your leash. Here's how far you can go. Short of his life, you can't take his life. But Satan went out with a vengeance and took everything else. Everything else. Had nothing to do with Job's sin. It was not God's chastisement. It was a test and a trial of his faith. That was the whole cosmic purpose that was being conducted. It was an argument that Satan was trying to have with the God of the universe. And when Job had that trouble sweep into his life and destroy everything in his life, all of his substantial wealth, the greatest man in the East, and take away all of his family and all of his health, so that his wife finally said, why don't you just curse God and die? As he sat there in dust and ashes, scraping his open boils with broken pottery, destitute and penniless. He had no idea at that point that there had been a discussion in heaven. No idea that God had said to Satan and Satan had said to God and opening up this testing ground in front of all of the spiritual forces in the universe to see who was right and to see whether his faith was genuine. He had no idea. All he knew was that everything was taken away in a flash. It was a test of his faith. Third category of trouble is temptation. Temptation. Temptation is from Satan. It is not from God. Scripture is very clear. God does not tempt anyone. And the purpose of temptation, of course, is to get you to sin. It offers you pleasure for a moment so that it can divert you into disobedience and bring you extended pain, ultimately destruction. So here are our three categories of trouble. We have God's chastisement that is from God that when we sin as followers of Christ and persist in it, 
and refuse to obey, God brings his chastisement so that through that momentary pain, he can bring us back to a place of obedience and blessing and joy and peace. So from God for the purpose of our blessing in love. Secondly, we have tests and trials. And tests and trials can come from God, from the world, or from Satan. Come from any three. And what a test and a trial does is it tests the quality of our faith, and as we endure, it strengthens our faith. And then thirdly is temptation that comes from Satan that offers temporary pleasure in an attempt to bring us into sin and disobedience and pain and destruction. Three categories of trouble. Each one of those has a different response indicated by Scripture. We'll talk extensively about this with chastisement next week, but the response with chastisement is to submit to it, is to accept it, submit to it, and repent and come back to a place of obedience. A test and a trial, the biblical prescription on what to do with that is to endure it, to just remain faithful in the midst of that test or trial. And then temptation, the way that you are to deal with temptation is you are to resist it. So look at those three ways. God's chastisement, you're to embrace it and submit to it. Test or trial, you're to persevere and stay true. Temptation, you are to resist. So you've got totally different. And if you misinterpret what the form of the trouble is, then you apply the wrong course of action. How critical then to help your kids to understand and for you to understand what, when you're experiencing trouble, what is it? Is this God's chastisement? Is this a test or a trial? Or is this temptation from the enemy? Okay, so now that we've set the stage, now what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on this first category. That's what this mini-series is about. And what we're going to answer today now in the remaining time that we've got is this question. What ways, in what ways does God chastise his people or what are the forms that God's chastisement takes? And in order to unpack that truth, what I want to do is I want to show you, I want to use a couple of biblical examples. I'm going to, I'm going to say this, uh, I'll say something like this regularly and you'll see this by, just by virtue of what we're doing every week here, but where you need to get your answers for life is right here. Not human conjecture, not uh, popular psychology, not the wisdom of man, you need to go to the authority structure for life, which is 
God's word to you. He has put in here what you need to know to answer those tough questions about life. God's word teaches you about God's chastisement so that you understand it clearly and know how to deal in the midst of it between you and God. So what does God's word say about God's chastisement of his people? Let's look at a couple of examples, first of all. First example I want to look at is Jonah. Jonah, you know the story of Jonah and the great fish. God gave Jonah a direct command. He said, Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, and I want you to preach to the city of Nineveh. It was a Gentile people, a non-Israelite, non-Hebrew people. I want you to go to them, and I want you to preach to them the message I am giving you to preach. And Jonah said, I don't want to do that. In fact, he went more... He, he did more than that. He said, God, I'm not going to do that. And he ran the other direction. And he went to the coast, and he got on a ship, boarded for Tarshish to go in the opposite direction and run away from God's direct command, telling him what he needed to do. So first point I'm making here is that Jonah had stepped into direct disobedience. He was pursuing aggressively his disobedient course in refusal to do what God was telling him to do. So what happened to Jonah? God began to chastise him. God began to bring his hand of oppression into Jonah's life. And how did he do that? Well, the first way that he did that is that he brought a storm that gripped the ship in which he was fleeing from God. A storm that gripped that ship in a violent hold. And Jonah there is down in the hull of that ship and he's being tossed back and forth in the violence of the storm. And folks, the story tells us that he knew exactly why the storm was there. In fact, he told the people he was with why the storm was happening. He said that it's because I am running from God. And yet, he was still unrepentant, still refusing to turn his course of action and come back to a place of obedience. And so what God did is he cranked up the heat a little bit. And they, the sailors cast lots to try to figure out who was the cause. And the lot fell to Jonah. And they went down and they got Jonah. And they said, what are you doing down there? In the whole of it, don't you realize that we are on the verge of death here? Who are you? What have you done? What country do you come from? And Jonah said, I am, or my God is the God of the land and the sea. 
And he said, the reason this storm has gripped this ship is because of me. They said, what do we need to do to save ourselves? And he said, you need to throw me over the side. Fully aware of what was going on, yet he is still not repenting, turning his way. And so they threw him over the side, and the storm calmed, and Jonah began to drift down through the dark, tumultuous waters right through the feeding path of a great fish who spied Jonah and thought, oh, there is a nice hors d'oeuvre right there. And that big fish with a big belly opened his big mouth and swallowed Jonah. And there Jonah sat. Three days later, Jonah astutely concluded that, you know what, preaching to Nineveh is really not such a bad idea. And from the belly of that fish, he cried out to God in repentance. And he said, the vow that I have made, I will fulfill. Translation, God, I will do what you have told me to do. And all of a sudden, coincidentally, the whale got a stomach ache and ejected Jonah onto land, and Jonah obeyed. He went to Nineveh. He did what God said, and that great city, experienced what may be the greatest revival of human history. As from the oldest to the youngest, the greatest to the least, repented in sackcloth and ashes and turned to the Lord. But the point is that Jonah was not, or Jonah was feeling the chastisement of God because of his disobedience. In what ways, then, what were the forms of Jonah's chastisement? What can we draw from that story? Let me just list you several. There were difficult circumstances. Would you agree that's a pretty difficult circumstance? How about relational loss? He Clearly, his relationship with the members of that boat were affected. How about monetary loss? He paid a fare, it says, to get onto that ship and to run from God. How about physical hardship? I want to read this sentence. I had fun writing this sentence, but would you say this is physical hardship? Three days without food or water, confined and constricted within a rolling chamber of flesh, laying among digesting fish in absolute darkness, submerged in gallons of acidic putrid stomach juices that were slowly burning your flesh. That is physical hardship. The form of God's chastisement at least was physical hardship. But it was also several other things there. How about David? Let's go to the, the great king of Israel, who even at a young age was called a man after God's own heart. 
A man who, as he was king, used his power and his privilege to take a woman who was not his wife but was someone else's wife to use her for his pleasure and then to attempt to weave a web of deception to hide that and when that didn't work to actually order the execution basically of her husband, Uriah. And David did all that and was still living life as a king, unrepentant of what he had done. And God sent a prophet to him who in a public arena, public forum, told him a story about this brutal treatment of a wealthy man to a poor man. And David, his anger flared up and he began to talk about in an emotionally charged way what should be done to that man. And the prophet looked at him and said, you are the man. You are the man. David would later write in Psalm 32 about that event. About God's chastisement. Listen to what he wrote, Psalms 32, 3 through 5. He says, for when I kept silent, meaning when I wasn't confessing my sin and repenting of my sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. There's his repentance. There's his confession. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What were the forms of David's chastisement? How did God apply his chastisement to David's life? Well, it certainly affected him both physically and emotionally. His bones wasted away. He was groaning. His God's hand of oppression was heavy upon him. His strength had dried up. Those are just some examples. Some ways in which God's chastisement was applied to two specific individuals. I don't have time, but we could look at you could look at many other examples in Scripture. Just go to the book of Judges. And that really pictures God's chastisement upon a nation, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And that when they were obeying God, they were living in freedom and blessing. And when they disobeyed God and fell into the practices of the people around them and into idolatry, God allowed the people around them to defeat them in battle and bring them into subjection. A part of that was they lost, a lot of them lost their lives, they lost their kids, they lost their houses, they lost their property, they were put into incarceration, they were forced into servitude. I mean, a lot of consequences to their sin. And then after a period of time, they would as a nation cry out and repent, and then God would restore them. And then they, after a period of time of blessing, would then fall again into sin. And it just is a story like this, this roller coaster ride. All of those examples of God's chastisement upon that nation. 
Let me just give you a few more verses that are not examples. They're just statements of truth related to God's chastisement and the ways that He chastises. Psalms 31.10, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Do you see the truth there? Because there is sin or iniquity in the life, it is bringing sorrow and years of sighing and failing strength and the wasting away of bones. That is significant influence, physical and emotional turmoil, hardship, trouble. Psalms 39.11a, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Think about what that says right there. It's not identifying specifically what is being consumed as if the object is what is important. What's important is it's what's dear to the heart of the individual. So that by consuming that, by taking that from that individual who is in sin, in iniquity, it gets his attention, brings the pain that is necessary to bring him back to a place where he repents and begins to obey. Finally, Job 5, 17 and 18. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for He wounds, but He binds up. He shatters, but His hands heal. Forms of God's chastisement or corrective discipline, wounds, physical effect, shatters, I believe possibly a reference to material loss and the consuming of what is dear. Just with that information, those examples and inferences and verses, what can we summarize about the ways or forms that God's chastisement takes? Well, let me begin by saying this. I think the proper thing that we need to conclude is this, that we cannot make a category list of here are the 32 ways that God chastises. It is impossible. It's unproductive for us to try to do that and impossible for us to try to do that. Here is why. Because God is a God of infinite wisdom, unlimited resources, and incomprehensible love. That when He chastises us, He does it based upon His infinite wisdom, His unlimited resources, and His incomprehensible love, meaning He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly how to bring into your life what needs to be brought into your life to bring the disciplining work that will correct you. And He has everything in His disposal to do that. And He always does it in love, knowing you specifically and knowing how to do it so that we do not then with a cookie cutter say, okay, these are the 25 ways. Folks, this is an incredible truth here. God chastises us as He understands us and knows how we need it. 
so that there is no wasted pain. There is not unnecessary pain. There is only what is needed to get specifically through to us. So I don't think we can categorize, here are the bullet point ways. Here's what I do believe that God's Word would have us do. This is the right course of action in answering that question. It is this. What are the principles related to God's chastisement in the life of the believer? What are the principles that speak to the ways in which God chastises? Let me give you four as I wrap this up. Here's number one. God's chastisement is recognizable. It's recognizable. What that means is that God doesn't want you in the dark when He's chastising you. He doesn't want you saying, Oh my goodness, why is all of this trouble happening? I've sought God. I can't figure this out. The whole purpose of chastisement is to Direct your attention to your sin and the guilt of your sin, seeing that the pain is coming because of the sin so that you will reject it, repent of it, and come back to a place of obedience. So God's chastisement then, by virtue of what He's doing, is recognizable so that you can see the problem, address it, and come back to a place of health and truth. So God's chastisement is recognizable. Let's apply that to Jonah. Let's apply that to David. Did Jonah know? Oh, yes, he knew. Most certainly he knew. Jonah said to the men on the boat, Jonah 1.12, I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Full recognition. I am the guilty one here, guys. I know I'm running. My sin is ever before me. I'm fully aware of it. David's story, David's example out of Psalms 32, 